One of the toughest and most important things in this time of extremism and friction in our culture and our politics is making the choice to reject the politics of division. Americans agree overwhelmingly on any number of critical issues until pollsters get involved, phrasing their questions in ways they know will confuse or mislead or divide. And those polls lead politicians looking to them to embrace positions sometimes that alienate rather than bring us all together. So we can build a better America by first recognizing that there are toxic incentives and rejecting them when we encounter them, and instead encountering one another in real life as human beings. So simple. It just starts there. And one of the little-known truths of American life is how overwhelmingly Americans of all ages, backgrounds, and beliefs affirm the human right to life when it comes down to it. Teresa Bukovinak of Pro-Life San Francisco returns to Life, Liberty, and Law and is joined by Herb Garrity and Krista Corbello of Rehumanize International, whose mission is to ensure that each and every human being's life is respected, valued, and protected. Rehumanize adheres to an ethos called the consistent life ethic, which calls for an opposition to all forms of aggressive violence against human beings. We speak with Teresa, Herb, and Krista on issues of beauty, justice, and the diversity of America's pro-life movement. I'm Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law. I am Tom Shakley from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. And I'm thrilled to be joined today once again by Teresa Bukovinak. Teresa, how are you doing? Hey, everybody. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Tom. It's good to be with you again. And we've also got new to the show, Herb Garrity and Krista Corbello from Rehumanize International. Herb, how are you doing? I'm excellent. I'm so excited to be here. I love AUL. I love Tom. I love everyone on the podcast. So love to hear it. This is going to be a good one. Yeah. Thanks for having us. I'm excited. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so good to be together in person too, in this time of social distancing and and pandemic and everything else. It's good to be here in Washington advocating for human life. So let's start with Rehumanize International. I spoke the words of your excellent mission statement. And, you know, we've talked in the program in the past with Charlie Camosi, uh, about the consistent life ethic. So we have a bit of a grounding for that, but Rehumanize is putting this into practice. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So Rehumanize does a whole bunch of different stuff, um, but we focus on education and activating particularly young people, but everyone to, to fight for these issues. So we do a lot of activism around the issues like abortion, euthanasia, unjust war, police brutality, you know, all, all of the all of the threats to human life. Um, and it's it's really exciting uh, to see, especially young people, a diverse group of people from all different political backgrounds, all different religious backgrounds and ideologies come together to say, you know, this basic idea that human life is valuable and human beings should be protected. Definitely. I love I love what Rehumanize does. And um, my involvement with, with Rehumanize has kind of increased over the years. In the beginning, it was an admiration for pro-life feminism and Amy and uh, the, her education and her advocacy. Um, I think I'm really drawn to the like intellectual and the education aspect because that's not my background. I'm a heart person, not a head person. But it definitely, uh, the life issue has a lot of logic and reason behind it. It's sensible. It's reasonable to be pro-life. And so from going from a just Amy Murphy, rehumanized fan to joining um, their conferences, their Life Peace Justice Conference, their Rehumanized Conference, going for the um, Create Encounter Art Contest and winning first place to being on the board. And now, as of two days ago, being the Rehumanized International Executive Board President, I'm excited um, for everything that they do and and moving forward and and continuing my activism uh, with Rehumanize. That's awesome. So yeah, Amy Murphy, of course, executive director of Rehumanize. And uh, I like it too, because, you know, I'm a native Pennsylvanian. Mm -hmm. So I like to hear, you know, I'm from the the Philly side of the state, but I like to hear that there are good things happening in Pittsburgh and you're in a great part of the city. Yeah. 
as someone from Philly and chose to leave for Pittsburgh, um, <laughs> I'm a big fan of all Pennsylvania. So we are, we have- Very diplomatic response. I absolutely. <laughs> uh, we have, we have uh, board members and supporters and uh, volunteers and activists all over the country, but we are based in Pittsburgh. Um, so definitely if you're there, come out to our events. <laughs> That's wonderful. And we've also had, of course, on the program in the past, Dr. Michael New, who's also a native Pittsburgh. Yes. So a lot of Pennsylvania connections here. Hope we're not alienating you, Teresa. No, not at all. I'm <laughs> actually also a longtime board member of Rehumanize International. Very, very supportive, obviously, of the work that Rehumanize does. I do personally hold a, the consistent life ethic. And while Pro-Life San Francisco remains neutral on topics outside of abortion, most of my board and the community understands that I personally am coming at this issue from the perspective of the consistent life ethic. And while Rehumanize is based in Pittsburgh, as we've clearly stated, <laughs> um, I find that um, the the teachings of the consistent life ethic and the existence of an organization like Rehumanize International is extremely valuable in my activism in San Francisco as a left-leaning person. It is a, a very um, quick and easy to understand way um, for left-leaning people to kind of be brought into this conversation about the right to life as it relates to abortion and looking at it through the lens of other human rights issues that they're likely to take a stance against. Yeah, it's so important, you know, and one of the things I love about Rehumanize is the resources that are available on the website. You know, Christy, you mentioned a, a whole number of programs and initiatives that Rehumanize is known for. Uh, you know, I know one of the, the, maybe the longest is the the Life Matters Journal, right? Absolutely. Um, but you've also got great things like, uh, you know, the graphics to share, which I love, you know, the the feminism, equality for all, uh, and graphics and quotes from the journal and all sorts of things that are great kind of uh, ways to invite people into the work, right? Yeah, Absolutely. I'm a huge uh, fan of butility. It's a word that I made up with my mm. uh, co-director, Alex Sagers, who I know has also been on this podcast. Um, butility is basically effective beauty. So things that are, you know, attractive to the eye, but also can be educational. And uh, a lot of the things that we did in our youth programs at Louisiana Right to Life had butility. And um, while we weren't the best graphic designers, we know that we had, uh, you know, we, we our initiative was really to bring in people, you know, we, I'm from a public relations background. So we see about 3,600 ads per day. Um, as Is that human it? Beings. Yeah. No, <laughs> isn't it crazy? That's the average person who gets on the internet for whatever amount of time. I don't remember. Um, but if we see that much, you know, we know, like if you're on the street handing out things to people, you have a second, you have one moment to give, to, for them to either throw it away. And on, and on the internet, how much quicker um, you have to catch someone's eye, someone's attention. So um, with pro-life messaging, it, it has to be beautiful. It has to look nice. It has to look modern and sleek, you know? That's right. Yeah, yeah, beauty speaks to the essence, right? It speaks to the truth of an issue, I think. You know, you see that in, you know, the, the great work of art that kind of immediately arrests your attention. You know, there's something inherent to it, right? And so it makes sense that you would have that in pro-life uh, activism, advocacy, literature. Something that I think that is so important in any kind of social justice or human rights movement is art in activism. Uh, you know, we've seen every social justice movement. It's not just the signs that you hold at the protest. It's the murals. It's the the internet memes as a form of art. It's everything. Um, so something that Rehumanize does every year is we have a an art contest um, to have a creative edition of Life Matters Journal, which we call it Create Encounter. Um, it's a program we put on every year, and we call all different types of artists from all different backgrounds to make protest art, make art and poetry and literature about these issues. Because I think, you know, a lot of us have activist backgrounds. We're passionate uh, because of the issues. But I think a lot of people don't get passionate until they they see the emotion in it. And I think things like paintings and poetry and stories, fiction or otherwise, are so important for bringing people in. And we need to encounter one another, right? You know, Teresa, I know we've spoken with you on the program before about the role of activism, you know, in the traditional sense where, you know, whether it's standing out in front of the U.S. Supreme Court um, with striking images, you know, thank you, Getty images, uh, or whether it's just the everyday kind of activism of, of being out in front of an abortion business and offering, you know, a mother's and father's real choice, right? Uh, other than what's there and what's being sold by that business. But, you know, the, the activism of beauty, I think, our butility, I like that, uh, is, is, uh, is attractive. It's crucial. Uh, we cannot 
really affect real change until we connect with our community on an emotional level. And people are emoted by music, by art. That's what makes us feel. And if we can understand something logically all day long, but until we understand it emotionally, until we connect with it in a deeper way, we're unlikely to be willing to challenge the status quo. And so if we are genuinely attempting to to disrupt a murderous system, then we absolutely have to disrupt that through art, through beauty, through music, the things that stir people's emotions to justice. Yeah, and you know these things intersect with you know uh, philosophy, right? Politics is is philosophical in nature as much as anything else. You know, we think of politics, I think, in maybe sort of a thin sense of like politics is is a PR slogan or politics is candidate A versus candidate B, and sure, that's a part of it. But philosophy is acted out through politics as it interfaces with issues of law and policy, issues of justice, issues that the Supreme Court has to consider. Uh, and, you know, one of these has been proportionalism, right? And so I think of proportionalism maybe in contrast to, like, the consistent life ethic, where there's sort of an inherent proportionalist idea that sort of says, you know, well, ethics are sort of, you know, secondary to other concerns. Maybe if we can kind of satisfy the most people, maybe that's the most ethical thing. And But when you think that way, you sort of bracket the questions, uh, the essential questions, like, is the action good? Right? Is it right? Is it just? Um, and you know, so there's, I think, a temptation to look at that. It's sort of that idea of, well, if we do the most good for the most number of people, then that's good enough. And it's like, no, no, that's that can be an excuse to tolerate all sorts of injustice, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think something that is so important to rehumanize is to reject all forms of utilitarianism, thinking that is able to put aside the rights of one group for the comfort of another. And that, you know, in no issue is that more clear than in the issue of abortion. So Krista, let's circle back here. What got you involved in the work of pro-life activism, but also uh, with this concern with beauty? So I'm a long time, my whole life has been with art. I've been in the performing arts. I've been in music. Um, I started songwriting. I play several instruments. Um, so my, my heart has always been in the arts. And for a long time, I saw the movement as an intellectual thing. And on my college campus, it certainly was. It was, can you have a conversation about this in an intellectual way? You had to audition. Maybe audition's the wrong word. <laughs> Too many people like me and her, basically, if we're yeah. talking about it. utilitarianism. It was, it was definitely, um, you know, how can I prove people wrong? And I think that's important to talk about it intellectually, but I didn't feel I had a place. Um, so I did a lot of background stuff in college, and um, I was in college campus ministry, and I have um, a Catholic ministry background. And so my, my love of service was really rooted in my Catholicism. So when I found a place in the movement, it was that I could serve people in the movement. And when I, when I could see um, in my own life how people did serve my mom for choosing life um, in the 90s when um, my biological father wanted her to have an abortion, when her, her, my grandparents, when my grandparents, her parents wanted her to have an abortion for me, um, and my mom was, was served by the people who loved her, who showed compassion to her um, as a Filipino immigrant in this country. English wasn't her first language, and she was rejected by uh, a lot of people. But because she chose life for me, there I know that um, she experienced compassion and, and service. And so whenever I discovered my own story of or origin, um, that's when I realized the movement was a movement of service and of other and of 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 rescuing and, and, and love. And it wasn't just this debate, um, political thing, I guess. So my involvement in the movement really started when I, um, I'm going to say auditioned. I can never think of the right word interviewed. I like it. <laughs> when I Audition might be a more honest way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> when I interviewed at Louisiana right to life, I only knew one detail of my own story and, um, I cried in my interview and I told them, I think I have a pro-life story because when my mom was pregnant, uh, she mailed pictures of herself pregnant to her family back home in the Philippines and they mm -hmm. mailed it back to her with X's on her stomach. Um, wow. And even though I didn't have the word abortion connected to that, when I found that out when I was 18, I knew at that moment, just saying it out loud, like, oh, that means abortion. Um, so I think I have a story to tell. And so I started telling my story. I started to discover it. Um, I have a song that I, I wrote um, 
to my grandmother actually when she was dying in the hospital um, that I kind of revisited when I went to Rachel's Vineyard retreat and um, I, I it was a it's a song about loss it's a song about pain and um, I played it at my siblings uh, funeral mass or memorial mass and um, it was very meaningful to me so being able to share my story in that way um, and I think it kind of what Teresa was saying earlier it, it affects people it shows people like this is a real issue. This is a, I, I'm a face of abortion for some people because I'm telling my story and you can't revoke someone's story from them. So um, sharing my story is a big part of my activism um, and especially through my music, I think. I think activism itself is an art. I often think of myself as a type of artist where I'm taking all of this information, trying to make it consumable for people, but in a way that's interesting and makes them want to look, but also tells the truth about things. And there's so many complicated issues that you have to weigh as an activist and, and ways that you are attempting to draw attention to your issue. And sometimes you feel kind of like a composer or an artist and it's really important to connect with those aspects of activism that are directly connected with fine art um, in order to to let that permeate the rest of your activism. Yeah, the politics of aesthetics, right? It's something we've lost, I think, this idea. Beauty certainly is a major part of this. Um, but when we boil this stuff down, when we distill it to just the things the pollsters tell us, for instance, we do forget, you know, that that people are attracted to, you know, not just the function of something, but the form of something, right? And it's, you know, it's the reason that you want that beautiful house plan in your kitchen, or it's the reason that, you know, you like having your puppy around uh, rather than no pet like me. We've talked about Teresa. Katie Glenn had her cat so throughout sad. quarantine, you know, but uh, you've got a cat too, haven't you? I have too. I don't know how people live without them. Well, we can we can talk about that another time. <laughs> but, you know, it's like the, the, the aesthetics of something is, is an experience uh, uh, that is present in our day-to-day lives. And when we ha- embrace or have imposed upon us sort of a brutal aesthetics, you know, the aesthetics of that maybe sonogram with an X on it. We intuitively feel right away, you know, you, you intuited this is, this means abortion. And there's a kind of a recoiling, I think naturally from that, you know, I think of uh, Steve Jobs, you know, he shared one time a powerful story of his own, you know, which of course many people don't know Steve Jobs was adopted. And, you know, he shared at one point, and, uh, this is a quote. He said, quote, I wanted to meet, my birth mother, mostly to see if she was okay and to thank her because I didn't end up as an abortion. She was 23 and she went through a lot to have me, unquote. You know, Steve Jobs, of course, it can be tempting immediately, you know, to think in those utilitarian terms, right? Herb, you know, if Steve Jobs had been aborted, we yeah. wouldn't have, you know, uh, Apple computer, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be listening to this podcast on our, on our iPhones or whatever, right? But uh, it's not just what Steve did, right? Steve's accomplishments didn't justify his, his being, his existence. Um, but he's a powerful example. And examples like that, examples like your presence here with us, Krista, right? That, that suggests a different way of living, a more humane way of living. Yeah, and I think that that's so important when we talk about art and its connection to truth. Because so much of rhetoric and so much of politics is about hiding the truth i think it's about you know the clump of cells language or the my body my choice and they don't follow up the choice for what the choice to kill um and so it's it's so important that you know we can speak the truth and we should speak the truth but sometimes you have to show the truth and the best way to do that is by showing stories and by creating art and creating examples for people to see you know, Krista, my friend, is not a choice. She's a person. Right. And she was a person from, you know, the moment she began to exist, as we all were. Right. And, right, the implicit thing is when we accept, oh, these are just privatized choices. They don't have any impact. You know, it's you have to look, right, in your eyes, Krista, and, and a person who has that philosophy, right, who is guided by that in their practice, what they have to come to terms with is, is, is they're essentially saying, ah, the world wouldn't really be any better or worse, you know, if you weren't here. Now, they people don't say that naturally, right? Because they, I think if you vocalize that, you realize like, oh my gosh, that's a horrible thing to say. But recognize like when we accept that ethic in endorsing a political candidate or endorsing a political movement, that's where we end up. 
Uh, and so it's, it's important to kind of pull ourselves out of that and to realize that um, even some things that might look or sound attractive don't kind of have the aesthetics of truth to them. One of the fundamental um, things that Rehumanize does is to literally rehumanize, that we have to rehumanize each other. And there really isn't a better way to do that than to see each other through art and through song and through our creative expressions. I think to, to the consistent life ethic has so much to contribute on these issues because you know, even the phrase pro-life, you know, I think if you ask many people, what do you think of when you hear the word or the phrase pro-life? They would think probably, oh, abortion. Mm -hmm. And certainly that's, you know, in terms of the numbers, in terms of the, the resonance of it in our politics, that is probably the big issue. But there's that whole spectrum of issues. You know, one of the ones that we deal with quite a lot at American Center for Life is the rising threat of suicide by physician and the threat of euthanasia and even imposed death that comes along with that. But there's this whole spectrum of issues, and I think it's, it's a poverty when these things aren't engaged fully. Yeah, absolutely. I think something that is so important to me when I say that I am an activist for the consistent life ethic, I am absolutely not saying that that means that everyone needs to be an activist for the consistent life ethic at this moment, <laughs> because, you know, it's another form of talking about, you know, proportionality. What, what are the biggest issues? Um, what is affecting the most people? And I think it's it's pretty clear in our culture that is abortion and war. And so most of my activism tends to focus on those issues. But it's so vitally important to have a, a philosophical basis for why I'm opposed to abortion or why I'm opposed to war or the death penalty or any of these important issues. You know, it's not it's not just singular, I, I believe. And um, I think the, the, the thesis of rehumanized organization... Uh, I believe the thesis of Rehumanize International as an organization is that we are all interconnected. We are all the same in the in, in the in the most fundamental way that we are all human. And on that basis, we deserve human rights. And I think the philosophy that you're talking about has a lot to do with the art of communication too. Um, like I said, I have a PR background and a lot of my nonprofit work was in the communications field. And even Pope John Paul II in his, in his letter to artists says that, it, that we need to perfect and make holy the art, the new art of communications. Um, and that doesn't mean just right here, like we're having a conversation, but every element of communication, which is making um, the life issue attractive and understandable and digestible for people of all different like areas of life, all different walks of life. And um, I think for me, a big part of that activism is is working with people like Rehumanize and people who are different than me and have different beliefs than me. And I mean, even though I know where I'm rooted in, in my, in my Catholicism and the dignity of the created human person, that's where it comes from for me. That doesn't mean that someone different than me or someone with different beliefs on a different issue than me um, has less dignity because of their beliefs. No, I'm, I'm ready to work with anybody who's, you know, ready to put out the fire that is abortion. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. You know, we've spoken about polling and the, the role of polling in shaping our political discourse. And that's one of those issues, right? Where it's like, you'll frequently see polls along the lines of, you know, uh, do you support Roe v. Wade? You know, and you have to understand, people don't know what Roe v. Wade is, right? It's like, yeah. if, you, if you pick any Supreme Court case out of a hat and you ask me what I think of it, I'm probably not going to know what the case concerns, right? Uh, and so, you know, people, I think naturally, you know, you don't want to admit like, I don't really know what that is. So, so you kind of just, you know, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> And so then you see the data, you know, and it's like whatever, whatever the percentages are, you know, 70, 80 percent of people support Roe v. Wade. But then you see other polls that actually ask about the substance of the issue. You yeah. Know, like, do you think that um, those who are pregnant deserve options and choice? And people are like, yeah, of course, of course. You know, do you support abortion, especially in something like, you know, the final weeks uh, or up to the moment of birth? And people are like, no. You know, and so it's like when we when we get out of kind of the rhetoric of these polls that is designed to mislead us, we get to that truth, that encounter, you know, with one another where people people want to help one another, I think. You know, and I think I guess that leads to, you know, so much of the work that the pro life movement does, but that that I know all three of you do is sidewalk advocacy in front of Planned Parenthoods and other abortion businesses. So let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah. And that I think 
is is so important for everyone in the movement to do. I think we are all called to, to such different roles in the movement. Um, we all have our own different passions. Some of us, you know, are lawyers. Some of us are pro-life doctors. Some of us are activists. I really believe that everyone should at least try to be a sidewalk advocate um, outside those clinics because that is in all of our communities. Um, it's It's happening. It's real. There are children dying. I think so often you know, it's the the pro-life movement ends up being debates about abortion and it becomes one of those issues. You know, we think of abortion sometimes in the same terms as we think about, you know, tax percentages and and things like that, um, because it is so intertwined with with politics. Um, And it should be, you know, it's a it's a majorly important political issue, but um, it's also real. It's also happening in our communities. So I think that sidewalk advocacy, reaching out to pregnant people, and saying, we're here to help you. We have the whole backing of the pro-life movement um, to, to help you choose life and to help your baby. Past pregnancy is so important for, for everyone to try to get involved in. One of the activists that does um, sidewalk advocacy with me sometimes mentioned once that she was motivated by learning about how during the Nazi Holocaust that people lived in those communities where the concentration camps existed and that they simply went about with the status quo and and how shocking that is you know from a historical perspective that people could just you know wake up and go to work every day just allowing the holocaust to um happen and uh, you know i'm not saying there's a direct parallel here but i think we all know that there are some similarities um, between what planned parenthood is doing institutionally and, and what happened um in germany and i think that we have to recognize the seriousness of the issue, like Herb said. And we often can get away from that when we are debating this on a philosophical level or we're just clicking like online. And I also want to echo that I think it is crucial that every pro-life person, regardless of you know your position within the movement or lack thereof, that we all um, take the time to visit our local Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is a national organization that has represented um, you know, this industry as long as it has existed in this country. And so And we know, according to even the most pro-abortion statistics, that at least two out of a hundred people entering the abortion facility for an abortion are being forced against their will. And we don't have any other systems in place in this country to try to prevent that other than sidewalk advocates actually being there on the ground to offer alternatives and to offer help in these situations. And in addition to that, obviously, we're helping those who aren't who are going in there of their own volition. We are also drawing attention to this issue within the community. We are showing that Planned Parenthood is the enemy and all of those things will help us build our movement um, towards social justice for the unborn. Yeah, I think sidewalk advocacy is the number one answer to the question, do you actually care about women? Mm. And anyone can do it. Anyone can do it. I think there's some basics, you know, that you can learn from the people there. Um, maybe you can get a training with 40 days for life or something, but I, I believe that sidewalk, sidewalk advocacy is not only in saving the unborn, but also saving the women from the herd of abortion. But even still, I've had a conversation with a post-abortive women at one of the clinics, not a Planned Parenthood, but at one of the clinics in Louisiana. Um, I had a very deep conversation and she got my phone number and we were talking even after um, she left Um, at that clinic. It's called Delta in Baton Rouge. They have three appointments. The first appointment is the counseling appointment. The second appointment is the abortion. And the third one is to make sure is to make sure that the abortion worked and that there's nothing left in there because it's such a botched abortion clinic. And anyway, so she was there for her third appointment and I, I spoke with her and there were a lot of advocates being so, so angry with her and, and it, it, I don't understand that because you don't know what she's going in for. You don't know if she's going in for birth control or her third appointment. And sometimes they're, they're able to know the sidewalk advocates can know what appointment she's at, but they had no idea which one she was at. And she had already had, she already had her abortion. So yeah. why are they yelling at her anyway? Um, so when I spoke with her and, and, and afterwards, when I spoke with her afterwards, she was telling me that 
I wasn't necessarily there. Like I wasn't able to make a save that day. And she said, I hope that you know what your kindness meant to me. And what she meant by that was when people were yelling at her, I kind of waited a little while and then told her, I'm sorry, I'm not with them. And I wanted to tell you, I'm sorry for what they said. I, I'm not, I don't support what he said to you. And I don't think you should be spoken to that way. And everyone else she was either, you know, cursing at or ignoring. But to me, she came to me across the parking lot because it was very far away from the door and hugged me. And yeah. I think it, it's not always just about the save. It can be about just showing basic dignity and love to a person who um, might be hurting. And, and I knew that she was hurting because she would text me afterwards. Um, Allison, that's her name. That's incredible. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. I think that that issue also goes back to the aesthetics of what we're doing. Um, you know, we we when we are representing the pro-life movement, when we're representing ourselves or whatever organizations we're a part of, it's so important to to be peaceful. To uh, you know, I'm I'm an atheist, but I am a big fan of prayerful actions outside of Planned Parenthood. As someone who does sidewalk counseling, um, it, it can be it can be. Uh, a very emotionally exhausting experience to do, but as someone who who does it uh, frequently, um, I know that it it's so important to to have people out there to be leaders because I think so many so many of us have this deep anger about what's happening, and it's a rational and righteous anger at abortion, at what abortionists are doing to these women um, and to these babies and to their communities and to all of us who are affected by the violence of abortion. Um, and it's it's correct to be angry, but again, sometimes uh, it can be most effective to be peaceful and prayerful um, and to to be a leader in, in the way that we show people that the pro-life movement is a pro-love movement. Um, that's that's right. not just a slogan, it's something that is very important to me. Um, both from an effective standpoint, you know, you're, you'll catch more flies with honey than vinegar, um, but also because that's what's right. When we when we talk about rehumanizing, that's not just the babies who are dehumanized, but it can also be the abortion providers. Um, and as we know, sometimes former abortion providers can be the best activists after they come to the pro-life side. That's so right. being kind, being loving, being, you know, uh, an example of what, a loving movement is, is so important. Yeah. You think about, you know, of course the, the most historic probably is uh, Bernard Nathanson, mm -hmm. but those who perform abortions, those who are part of the machinery of abortion businesses who then have that change of heart and come to a place where they recognize this was an injustice and they devote their lives toward trying to restore some of the balance through just actions their witnesses is it's just incalculable, right? Because this is somebody who's been there. And how do you, you know, I think of, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson uh, has in one of his talks, you can look, look up on YouTube and he talks about, you know, he says, imagine yourself as an Auschwitz guard, right? And so that kind of is that example, right, Teresa, where it's like, it's so easy to stereotype the people we perceive as, as the other side or our opponents, or enemies even. Um, you know, we, so we look at something like Nazi Germany, we say, oh, of course, that's so, so wrong, so evil. And, you know, Peterson's whole point is you, you know, we today with 70 plus years removed so confidently, we assume that we are on the side of the allies, you know, that's well, right. so many of those Germans thought they were on the side of what was good and right. That's what made it such a difficult war, such a necessary war, right? Right. Because we had sides with just totally different visions of the good. One so warped that what they thought was good was was its opposite, right? And if that can be true in that situation, you know, Peterson's point is like, you're just as likely to have been the Auschwitz guard. So I think it's easy to look at it like a black and white issue. And I think for me, at least getting more into the movement means that it's not just pro-life versus pro-choice. Sometimes it's pro-life against pro-life um, because not all pro-life people are are doing the same thing to build a civilization of love or a culture of life or a, a culture of compassion. And I think the inclusion factor, at least for me, means helping people become better activists. And for me, always trying to become a better activist. How can I communicate this better? Before I post things, I, I talk to my trusted friends. Does this make sense? And not ostracizing someone for maybe their strategy. Um, you know, I've 
obviously done a lot of research into what helps social justice uh, movements move forward, progress. And one of the main issues that I've run into is that it it does require um, kind of rallying around an enemy, uh, which often seems to contradict with our um, desire to be a very loving movement. And I, I think it's important to remember that we, our enemy is an institution. Our enemy is a, is a systemic issue um, that you know, goes back to ancient times. And it's not pro-choice people or even abortion industry leaders that are our enemy, that we seek to rehumanize those individuals. However, it is important for us to view that institution as an enemy um, in and of itself so that we can gather people in our movement to counter that institutional enemy. Yeah, absolutely. I think right now there is a lot of discussion, and I think it's great, around institutional and systemic racism. Um, And I think that that is so important, and I'm so happy to see uh, those issues getting more attention and rehumanize, of course, has been a a part of that and a voice for that within the pro-life movement. Um, And I think there are a lot of excellent tie-ins to how the the systemic violence um, and the systemic dehumanization, systemic racism is involved, of course, systemic ableism, all of this is tied up in the abortion industry. And I think that as we learn more about how these systems work and how you know, sometimes otherwise good people can get caught up in them um, with the best of intentions, um, but it's still important to call out those systems. It's important to disrupt those systems. And eventually it is important to completely destroy those systems and rebuild from the ground up. That's right. Yeah, especially as we're living through this moment, you know, Planned Parenthood stands out as an organization that is mired from its founding in issues of racism, mm-hmm. right? This is, uh, you know, uh, Planned Parenthood, I think, has signaled that it's 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 interested in coming to grips with this, um, but it's it's certainly a kind of a reluctant interest because you know if you go on Planned Parenthood's website, you can find just from a couple of years ago, you know, marking what they called 100 years strong, and they they have a, a profile of Margaret Sanger, their founder. They say a trailblazer in the fight, um, you know, whose history they say is layered and complex, mm-hmm. which I assume is euphemism for overtly racist and seeking to reduce the black population in America because that's what the fact of it was. Yeah, the the co-founder of the American Birth Control League, Lothrop Stoddard, was a known white supremacist. All you have to do is Google his name and it literally says white supremacist next to it. So the very institution of abortion was born out of eugenics and out of this relationship that our country had with the Nazi regime. Clarence Thomas wrote powerfully on the eugenic history in America, and even that's one of those underknown aspects of it, which is that, you know, as heinous as the crimes of the Nazi regime was in Europe, people don't understand that the Nazis borrowed many of their ideas from American eugenicists. Uh, This wasn't something that, you know, just came into a diabolical mind in Nazi Germany. This is something that had been bubbling uh, for a long time. And, you know, so it's in that sense, the the work today, you know, if you're somebody who's drawn and recognizes that someone entering an abortion business deserves that loving hand that you spoke about, Krista, you are entering, you know, a centuries long struggle, you know, a struggle to overcome um, this injustice. And, you know, a good place to start is, is you're right, Teresa, we identify that the institution, in this case, like a Planned Parenthood or an abortion business they are an opponent that must be confronted. But people, people are people of heart and, and hearts can change, right? And so, you know, that's, that's why, for instance, you see over and again, pro-lifers emphasizing there's no need for abortion businesses that are already profitable to be getting taxpayer funding, right? What are we doing here? Yeah, I think that that idea of profit and the profit motive is so important to always keep in mind. You know, when we look at, at Planned Parenthood donors, when we look at the people who end up profiting from abortion, we're talking about millionaires, sometimes billionaires, who, you know, it's it's not so far removed from the eugenics movement, um, this this population control idea. You know, we don't we don't speak in those terms and, you know, in the in the United States it's a little bit taboo. But when you look at international Planned Parenthood affiliates, um, when we're talking about the so-called third world countries, developing countries, 
you know, the eugenics movement is is alive and well, but we, you know, people like Bill Gates are funding it um, and we call it pro-choice instead of what it is, which is this form of ideological imperialism funded by the billionaire class. You know, this is an issue of, you know, capital interest um, overtaking human rights and, and women's lives and babies' rights and lives. That's right. You know, we've spoken recently on Life, Liberty, and Law with Obianuju Eka Ocha or Uju from Culture of Life Africa, and she's spoken about this, you know, this ideological imperialism, this neocolonialism, you know, what she calls, I think, correctly and provocatively, philanthropic racism. And it's this idea, right, that, you know, we can manufacture market demand for something that doesn't exist. You know, she points out, she says, you look at the data, Africans overwhelmingly reject abortion as a legitimate choice, as a legitimate tool in service of certain interests. But powerful interests are promoting it, right? The same way they do here domestically. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's like you saw last year, I think it was, what was it like? Some great number of Fortune 500 companies, startups, San Francisco companies, sorry, Teresa, <laughs> you know, signed this open letter, right, emphasizing how important abortion is. And, you know, it's like, why would they do this? Well, it's pretty simple. You know, it's like if your employees don't have family obligations, they can spend more time working for you, right? And so it's like, it doesn't take much when you think about this to understand what are the incentives here? And, and to push back. And we even need to do that in our companies if we're in a company situation like this. And it, it's going to mean bravery. It's going to mean courage and risk. But to step up, right, and to say if you work at, like, a company that signed this letter, you know, like a San Francisco startup, to say, no, you don't speak for me in this way, right? Yeah, this is a, a tactic that the abortion industry has used since the 1970s. It's shaming literally anyone who dissents on abortion. And this is an effort to do that on a broad level to ensure that, you know, the left-leaning people that, uh, that agree with, you know, these tech companies' ideologies on most other issues are forced to keep that information quiet. I have spoke with Google employees who've been concerned about their pro-life opinion, who have gone to their employers and said, hey, is it going to be an issue if my boss finds out I'm doing this pro-life work? And the feedback they've gotten is, yes, it will not help your career and you should probably keep that quiet. And that's very, very silencing, powerful, and effective. It's incredible. I mean, it's, you know, and it's, of course, these are all off the record conversations. But sure. The, the more I that, just put it on the record, though. <laughs> <laughs> the more that these things are silenced, uh, the more dangerous it becomes, right? Because it's like, uh, you know, it's like something being slowly brought to boil. And eventually, you know, that that whistle is going to go off. All right, Teresa, Herb, Krista, we've talked a lot about a lot of big issues, beauty, aesthetics. Um, what was the word? Beautiful. What is it? Beautil Utility. We talked about a lot of big things. Butility, I like, which I'm adding to my lexicon. Uh, aesthetics, the, the importance of activism, the importance of encounter, of being there for people outside of abortion clinics through sidewalk advocacy. As we look to the future, what's next, both for Pro-Life San Francisco and for Rehumanize International? So Pro-Life San Francisco, if you don't know, is engaged in a campaign against the University of California, San Francisco uh, for their very unethical um, fetal tissue research practices. We know um, from their online modules and from statistics and, and from lots of other sources uh, that UCSF relies on uh, live dismemberment abortions and possibly and very likely born alive infants in order to supply, uh, to harvest and supply fresh baby body parts for medical experimentation. Um, now this obviously is, got to be one of the most egregious and most grotesque yeah yeah i mean this is the this is abortion extremism at its worst in america abortion extremism in general emanates from the university of california san francisco this the their ryan residency trains more obgyns than anyone else in this country and they are the most involved um, medical institution on the issue of abortion worldwide they've been funded um, by warren buffett um, Packard and Gates since the 1960s, uh, and they are connected to basically the the production of RU486. They are connected this to is all chemical abortion, exactly the abortion pill um, and several other very shady things. Um, so, you know, I, I mentioned before earlier the the story of the friend that I have that sidewalk um, counsels with me who 
um, brought up the idea of, you know, people actually existing in the communities where, in Germany, where concentration camps existed. And and we're talking about monthly supplies of, of viable late-term human fetuses, um, either dismembered alive or born alive and, and, and killed during dissection. Um, so, if we're not willing to get up and stand up in San Francisco and say, this is absolutely wrong, this is something that the vast majority of Democrats and even pro-choice people would oppose if they knew what was going on. So Herb and Krista have both agreed to come to San Francisco this summer. We're partnering with survivors of the abortion Holocaust um, to to put continuous pressure on this university to come up with creative activism ideas to draw attention to this issue, to get a national spotlight on what's going on there. Um, and we welcome you to come get creative with us uh, this summer, anytime uh, in the month of July or August, we welcome you. That's so powerful. This is an issue that too few people are speaking to. You know, I think in some respects this year, it's gotten buried because of the election year, because of the pandemic. But this is something I think about, you know, we spoke with Hadley Arcus recently and he really bemoaned, you know, he says, especially the, the, you know, President Trump, the Republicans don't understand if they wanted to, what a gift they've been given with things like the Born Alive Abortion Infant Survivors Protection Act and this issue because it's like so many things, it's become needlessly politicized. But the issue right now is that neither party is interested in speaking about it. You know, Ben Sass sort of made an issue of it for a few weeks uh, it's sort of been, you know, thrown about here and there, but it's little more than platitude at the end of the day. At the end of the day, because people aren't talking about it, it's uncomfortable, right? They yeah. don't want to address it. It's the worst. But it's happening. It's easier to talk about first trimester abortion than it is to really dive into these very, very serious um, late-term issues. And and so, I definitely understand people's aversion to it. However, you know, the time has come to address this. And when we're looking broadly at uh, strategies for actually winning this movement, we have to win in places like San Francisco. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has, she blocked a vote on the Born Alive Act like 80 times in 2019. And obviously she represents San Francisco. She's a longtime resident there. Um, and this is allowed to happen at the University of California, San Francisco, right there in her own backyard. If we as a pro-life movement are able to pool our resources and our creative talents together and actually make real noise about this particular issue in a place like San Francisco, we will win. Atla uh, San Francisco is the Atlanta of the civil war on the abortion issue. When we win there, when we really start to show that even pro-choice people disagree with this level of abortion extremism, the abortion industry will fall. They will no longer have a secure relationship with the Democratic Party, and they will therefore have no power in this country. It's a question that has to be asked every time we engage publicly with Planned Parenthood or abortion business interests. Why do you support for-profit harvesting of human beings? We don't have to get into what you're doing with them even. Why do you support this? You know, and it's, it's just simply the case that they're not asked. And they don't know. I think, you know... I with UCSF, our claim isn't that, you know, they're benefiting financially from this, although I'm sure that they are to some degree. It's uh, it's more about the egregious practices that are happening. But we know in California that there are companies that are profiting off of this, like STEM Express, like Advanced Biosciences Resources. Um, and these companies do exist, and people don't understand that they do because they're like, well, that's illegal. It's illegal, obviously, to profit from baby body parts. So how could there be baby body parts companies? And the answer is just that they're allowed to exist because there is no oversight. There is no one in California, no legislator that's willing to hold them accountable, except in Southern California, where you see Da Vinci Biosciences actually was um, held accountable by the, the DA there. And, and they settled in a $7.8 million settlement and promised, uh, first of all, a, a admitted to selling baby body parts and profiting from it and apologized publicly and have now promised never to do business in um, you know this country again in terms of that. So that's real. It is really happening and people just aren't aware. No, you're right. You know, you speak about your friend who grew up near the concentration camps in Germany. I think, you know, I can never see, you know, when I see like a stericycle truck go down the street again, I never see that the same way since the investigations over the past few years, right. it is it is the equivalent, right, of, of seeing that train roll down the tracks to Dachau or Auschwitz 
um, and it's right here. It's in our daily lives, and we've got to continue pointing it out. What do, what do we have to look forward to with Rehumanize? What are you guys up to next? We have a lot going on. We, of course, always have Life Matters Journal. That is something that I've been working on recently. We've been involved in the current uprising for Black Lives Matter. To be clear, not the organization Black Lives Matter, but the message mm. that Black Lives do, in fact, matter, and that all Black Lives Matter, um, whether they are in prison, whether they are transgender, whether they are victims of police brutality, or whether they are victims of abortion, Every single black life matters, um, and it's it's important that those issues are are getting attention. Um, so, of course, we are we are involved in that. We are involved in this uh, UCSF campaign. Uh, we also I'm just getting started in looking into the University of Pittsburgh's involvement with fetal tissue research. Um, David Delayden wrote an excellent piece about this recently, um, describing this this just horrific level of um, abuse when we're talking about these unborn boys and girls um, being sold um, for profit and being experimented on. You know, we, we wouldn't accept this on, on anyone. You know, you couldn't, right. you couldn't do this to um, the, the, the worst political prisoner that, that we have, um, but we're doing it to innocent little babies. Um, so I am, I am getting involved in the campaign to confront the University of Pittsburgh on fetal tissue research because, as Teresa said, this, this is a turning point, I think. I think that this is something that I, I'm really passionate about finding common ground with people, and even people who are pro-choice can see how absolutely grotesque this is and how it's not necessary. You know, another issue that uh, Rehumanize International deals with is embryonic stem cell research. That is another example of using these human beings, um, and often in embryonic stem cell research, we're talking about killing the human beings for research um, or researching on them and killing them after two weeks, um, which is about as long as we're allowed to, to keep embryos alive for experimentation. Because once they get older, they start looking more human. Um, and it's so important to, to point out that both these, these issues, embryonic stem cell research and uh, late-term aborted fetuses for medical research, are not necessary. We're not finding results from these. We we have made so many more progress with adult stem cell research. Um, Charlotte Lozier Institute has a lot of excellent information on that, um, and it's just so so important to to remember that we are not extremists here. We are when we're right. talking about these issues, we are the common sense solution. Um, People shouldn't be killed. People shouldn't be experimented on uh, during their or directly after their death. It's 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 grotesque, and it is uh, it, you're able to find common ground with people of all different political backgrounds, whether they're pro-life, pro-choice, anything. Um, and so, so that is what we are up to, along with I'm sure a bunch of other projects. <laughs> That's tremendous. Yeah, you know, pro-life, it's just the natural position that people have, right? It's like you don't need labels to describe it. If you ask the average person, do you want to help your brother or sister? The answer is going to be yeah. Um, so I, I love that Teresa and Herb have these like very eloquent and itemized list of things that they're going to be <laughs> do moving forward, be doing moving forward. But um, for me, as the new board president, I think, of course, supporting and being there for UCSF this summer, um, just moved to San Francisco and California in general. Um, Woot! Very I lived nice. There, well, I lived there for two days and then I came to D.C. So now <laughs> I live in D.C. Um I, I think as the board president, I, uh, my focus is going to be maybe not so much on the front lines in the future, but definitely activating further leaders. Um, I consider myself the leader of leaders, and I'm really good at rallying the troops. And um, for me, that looks like um, getting people to, it's like strength-based practice in psychology and saying, what are what are your strengths and where's your place in the movement and how can I activate and help you flourish and, and do it? Because a lot of people um, do care, but I think a lot of people also maybe don't feel like they have a place like I did once in the movement. Um, and so I think my place in the movement right now is getting other people to find their place in the movement. So for me, that's, you know, my, my, my family and friends back home in Louisiana, getting them involved and informed about the June medical um, case right now. And uh, with Rehumanize, activating our board and our followers in our community and getting them to, to do more and say more and speak out and, and be brave and be bold because it's needed. Um, but further, I think, um, and maybe very long term for me, is, is creating a, a community for people who are considered for abortion or have aborted siblings through my nonprofit, Even This Way. 
That's powerful. All right, Teresa, Herb, Krista, something we do every show is our shot of gratitude. We share just something we're grateful for. It can be anything. Teresa, what's something you're grateful for? Well, I know it's probably pretty obvious, but I'm really grateful for Herb and Krista who have come to Washington with me and who are going to help me organize for UCSF and and just their incredible commitment and activism. And they make me look really cool. So <laughs> I am very thankful. It's true. It's true. You know, I'm thinking myself, I'm, I'm grateful for all the work you're doing, but I'm grateful in particular that, you know, we talk a lot in America about the First Amendment, right, about free speech. and But we've also talked about the ways that free speech can be suppressed, right? If you're maybe at that company where they say, yeah, you really shouldn't talk about this if you want to keep your job or if you want to have a future here. So I'm grateful that we at least here and that there are places, uh, mediums, podcasts, internet, elsewhere, where you can still speak openly and speak freely. It's so important. We've got to defend the space by engaging in it because otherwise we forget what it looks like. Being a pro-life activist automatically means that you have to be a First Amendment activist, <laughs> period. You have to fight for both. That's right. That's right. Because they're going to come for the Google searches next. <laughs> so, Herb, how about you? What's something you're grateful for? I think uh, this is a similar, a similar answer to Teresa's, but I think I am right now in this moment, very grateful for the pro-life activists who have came before me. Um, I'm relatively young, I like to think, and I haven't been in this movement for, for you know decades like some of the, the people who are current leaders are. Um, and I'm so grateful to this movement that is so welcoming, I think. Um, I think the caricature of the pro-life movement is often the, the old conservative white man um, who's probably racist and sexist and homophobic. Um, <laughs> And I am just always so, so, you know, I'm an atheist, but blessed is the only word I can think of. <laughs> I love it. Secularly blessed <laughs> yeah, is what I say. Blessed. Privil <laughs> privileged would be the right word, I think. Yeah. Um, by by these, these current pro-life leaders who have been at it forever and who, you know, welcome me as an atheist, as a member of the LGBT community, as someone who is more left-leaning, um, to see the, the pro-life movement growing and more people like me getting involved and and being welcomed in these traditional pro-life spaces. You know, I think that often there can be a tendency to want to bash the pro-life movement to, to say, oh, I'm not like them. I'm I'm a cool pro-lifer. Um, and, <laughs> and while we all are very cool pro-lifers. Very. Um, Politics of division. You got to reject it. Exactly. Um, you know, it's because of these old conservative white men who are also cool pro-lifers and <laughs> are willing to work with us to, to, as Krista said, put out this fire that is abortion, this, this human rights crisis, this disaster that's happening every day. Um, so I'm grateful for, for the pro-life people who are, who came before me and who are still fighting. That's right. You know, here at American Senate for Life, we have Mildred Press, which is our publishing imprint. And, you know, this is, this speaks exactly to that. You know, it is so often a caricature, a stereotype that of course serves the interests of our opponents on these issues that, that pro-life people are just, you know, they're just one kind of narrow type of the population. And it's just not true, you know. So Mildred Jefferson is a former board member of America's Unit for Life, and she was a powerful pro-life advocate from the earliest days. She was a doctor. And, uh, you know, I'll quote from her here as, as we're thinking of her. She said, quote, I'm not willing to stand aside and allow the concept of expendable human lives to turn this great land of ours into just another exclusive reservation where only the perfect, the privileged, and the planned have the right to life. Unquote. So I think Mildred Jefferson is a great example of somebody there from the earliest days and, and one of those titans whose shoulders we stand upon in this work today. Krista, how about you? What's something you're grateful for? So first of all, of course, I'm thankful for everybody in this room. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here. Thanks, AUL. Good answer. Um, safe answer. <laughs> yeah. But I think most of all, I'm, I'm thankful for invitation right now. Um, I was invited by Teresa to be here. I was invited by Rehumanize to be a part of their community. I was invited by AUL to be a part of this podcast. And I think invitation is a, is a true form of hospitality. And um, as someone who considers my number one charism as music and hospitality, I think hospita hospitality comes from being... Um, a good guest. And I think being a good guest comes from someone who is hospitable first. And so I think the movement, while is very inclusive and has a lot of different voices and a lot of different faces, um, it's because of that hospitality, that movement hospitality that I received too, to feel like I had a place. And so if it wasn't for the invitation first, I don't think that I would have the opportunity to invite. 
Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. I love beauty. <laughs> All right. Utility. Teresa, Herb, Krista, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. All right. If you enjoyed our conversation today, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening, rate the show and leave a review. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for me at Americans United for Life, for Teresa at Pro-Life San Francisco, or for Herb or Krista at Rehumanize International, just email us at life at AUL.org and we'll make sure you're in touch. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.